I do have another set of headphones, but uh, they're my dad's and they have a lot of earwax in them. <laughs> Just wear them. <laughs> it's for the podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Dunce's Corner. This time it's the apocalyptic social distancing episode. And I am joined once again by my good friend and colleague, Dr. John Minor. Hello, hello. How's it going? Good, how are you? Excellent, excellent. <laughs> and we are also joined this time by Elise. Welcome hello, back, Elise. Hello, everybody. Hey, it's an excellent stack of <laughs> toilet paper and Kleenex next to Panic you. Panic <laughs> buying all the paper products. If you got limited, come over to my house. <laughs> excellent. She's collecting to dispense. That's really what it's <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> really. <laughs> Give. Not just, you know, that guy who had 17,000 hand sanitizers? And you want yes. to sell? <laughs> it's like me, but uh, I might give it away for free. So come on over. Oh, how generous! Thank you. At a time like this, I was listening to the latest uh, "This American Life" on NPR, and some lady was looking for masks to wear. I don't know if it was for her mom or something. And she called all these places, and they were all out. And then finally, one lady that she called was like, "Well." I have some of my own personal collection. If you want to, you know, let's talk after work if you really want to get one of these. So they end up talking and the lady arranges some shady meeting in front of a Safeway (laughs) vending machine and charges some like exorbitant amount for like three masks, like 75 bucks or something. And this, and the lady who's buying her mom, like actually needs these. Mm -mm. And, and the lady was like, they totally did it like a drug deal, like hand over the money, like really quickly. And the lady was like, I've got more later if you need it, you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Stuff's crazy. I know. So you're saying I could, that could be like my business deal. I could make money that way? I guess so. Or at least, at least, at least can make money that yeah. way. Then this is where you got to go. Yeah. By the way, uh, Catherine, we're joined by Catherine. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm yeah. I'm on a different side of this whole corona thing because I work in a grocery store. So mm-hmm. I, I was there this morning and there were just people coming in. Just like, it's weird. It's weird. Because our clientele, it's a strange clientele too because it's health professionals because we're near a hospital, but also the elderly. So it's not a good mix. Ooh, and the, yeah. the, the recent people who came in this morning, it was just like, everyone's just panicked. And buying a lot of ground meat. And so I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's yeah. weird. It's weird. How are you guys doing just on supplies? Like, is, is the store well stocked or what? Ah, I mean, like, we only sell like food. We're not like a hand sanitizer. We're not like any Kleenex, none of that kind of stuff. So mm. I don't know. As far okay. as like food, our, fr- our frozen dinners are almost gone though. So. Yeah. That is, that is where we're really hurting, I guess you could say. (laughs) Well, I I saw in a friend's Facebook, she posted pictures from our local Rouse's, the one that Adrian and I go to, and the whole cleaning supply section was gone. 
And then the sandwich meat section was nearly empty except for bologna at the bottom. And I was like, Aww. we are, we are bougie emergency prepared people, you know? <laughs> this is Can the time he... where you know what is not liked. In the Who street. doesn't like bologna? <laughs> that's my ex- that's exactly how my Rouse's is by my apartment. Everything is gone except the bologna. That's perfect. I love bologna. I used I to know. eat bologna more for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and since you chimed in, hey Trey, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm. Um, I live in my closet now. I never leave. Um, my wa- my washer machine also broke today, so that was a huge bummer. Um, and then the guy came and was like, oh, well, um, he thinks like the circuit shorted. Um, and so we were trying to move it out and it fell down my stairs into the parking lot and like broke into like 10 pieces. Oh my god! So it's not being, so it's not fixable anymore, but we got a new one. So that's the important part. Okay. Wow. That's the kind of thing everyone wants to do, but you can't just throw a washer down some stairs. <laughs> He, he right? had it on a dolly, and I was like, are you sure? Like, do you want me to go in front? And he's no, I got it. And he, <laughs> 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 it, it went down um, one stair, <laughs> it bumped, and then it just totally, it fell down, like, all the rest. And he was like, well, it's down the stairs now. So. Oh man, I don't suppose he wants to help me fix my air conditioning and break it and get me a new one. I don't know. Uh, I can help you, but I'm not insured. Uh, okay, mm. no, I don't want you to help. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, am Dr. Brian Pedraza, and this episode of The Dunces Corner is about loneliness and community. Hey, talk about an apropos time to be thinking about this because with all of the um, measures that are going in place all over the country and including in our own state, I watched Governor Bell Edwards' press conference yesterday and he is definitely, not only did they lower the number of people you know, legally that they want to see gathered from 250 now to, what is it like 50 is the maximum? I think it's, but, but he was, yeah. but he was basically, yeah, he was basically saying like, don't do any social gatherings whatsoever. Oh yeah. 10. Yeah. I think president, president Trump is the one who recommended that at his press conference, mm-hmm. but it's crazy. These are crazy times. I mean, what have, what have y'all been thinking about all of this? Well, I know for me and Trey, we both are not allowed at our clinical rotations for 60 days. So that's been a huge change. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. are um, you all going to make up those credits or Trey, do they know I, yet? I don't know about you, but I'm working under our professor for our psychology. So I'm working under Dr. Lepper and working remotely and checking in with her doing projects at home. So it's definitely very different. And then also possibly working with my supervisor at the clinic. Everything is, everyone's trying to be flexible. We even got updates from our program head across the country that this is probably the best solution. So we are going to be able to do the hours, but everyone is just trying to work and be as flexible as possible. So thankfully we will be able to I think do the hours for the semester, but even some of the other um, people in my program who aren't at my clinic, which is an outpatient clinic of Our Lady of the Lake, 
they work at another clinic for kids with special needs, they're not going to be able to do their hours either. So Trey, what is it like for you? I'm thinking we're probably just going to have to do them over the summer, to be honest, because we got an email from uh, the health system that said like, basically saying that no more students are going to be doing the rotations at, at the hospital for 60 days. Um, and so like 60 days from now is like the middle of May. And so like we have to get our hours somehow. So I don't know if we're just going to do more clinical in a shorter period of time over the summer or what's, I mean, it's all really, really up in the air right now. Yeah. So this has the potential to, um, be devastating for some people. I mean, I, I imagine in, whether at our, our university or at other ones, there are some people who are not going to be able to finish their semester or we'll have to take an extra semester, which is going to be super expensive. I mean, yeah. yeah. I was just thinking about today, like, I don't know the way that it's being, I don't know, just talked about in the news. And of course the news, like, you know, kind of makes everything a bigger deal than it is, but I mean, this is something that's globally affecting us. I think it's comparable, com- comparable, I don't know, comparable to, um, <laughs> right, that of like plagues of the past, right? So I think this is, it's going to be interesting how this is like taken down in history. And knowing that like we're a part of history, I don't know, it's weird. You don't think about that usually, but it's, you know. Yeah, it, it's humbling. Yeah, it's humbling for a modern world that sort of prides itself on, science right yeah this is very humbling and i I think you know you're right when this first this stuff first started blowing up you know a few days ago part of the skepticism for some people was fueled by like the hysteria of buying toilet paper and bottled water and stuff like that which just made a lot of people like this is crazy why do we need to be doing this you know this is not a big deal but then that skews, you know, the vision of what the reality is that this disease is spreading so quickly. And, you know, the, the statistics, you know, most people are thinking that it, it's not like a matter of if it's like when it overruns the health system in various communities in America. And we don't want to see that happen because you've already got stories coming out of Italy where there's only so many intensive care beds and there are a number of patients that far exceed it. And then you've got hospitals and medical professionals are having to make decisions, you know, like, Oh, we only have 30 beds and there's a hundred people. So who are we going to treat and who are we not going to treat? You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's scary, you know? Yeah. And I think the, one of the reasons that there are being this extensive of like measures to like, you know, quarantine people to kind of decrease the amount of social gathering is to keep it to the keep it from the point to where there's so many people getting sick and our hospitals just literally can't take care of them you know like one of the more mind-boggling ones is that like nursing homes you you can't go visit you know family members in nursing homes anymore unless you're designated as a caregiver because like if you think about it if this virus starts like spreading inside of a nursing home, where are all those hundred patients going to go a hospital? You know, it's just, it, it's, it can be devastatingly crippling to a hospital who doesn't have enough beds, staff, 
and supplies to treat everybody. Yeah, that's heartbreaking too, because I mean, for the people who struggle with loneliness in nursing homes, I mean, to now have the amount of people who can come visit nearly cut off or cut off all the way, I mean, that's just so sad. This is an interesting problem on so many levels, I think, especially for the elderly. But my grandfather is 85. He's around the middle 80s and very active, Um, also pretty stubborn. But he is um, a practicing radiologist, very fit, um, skis regularly, and he's in the hospital system and still is planning on practicing radiology from a few days ago, as I heard, not planning on self-isolating. And so if he were to catch this in a hospital, then it could be possibly deadly. But um, he, as he's fit and working as a doctor, he doesn't see, you know, the problems with it. He wants to help in this crisis, but he's also in the Mm -hmm. huge risk age factor. Right. I know. Yeah, it's weird because all of our desires for community, all of our desires for just doing things that are pleasurable, going out to go dinner. You know, my parents are just talking about how they bought tickets to some show that my mom really loves. And she took my Oma and Opa to it when they were still alive. And they're so excited to go again. You know, and this is just like a couple of days ago. And they were you know, after we had just lamented about not being able to go to mass and everything, and she was like, so I, I think we're going to still try to go to that show. <laughs> and I had to give like a, uh, a filial <laughs> lecture <laughs> in some gentle way to try and say like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. And now I reinforced it with a text mm-hmm. the next day. Thankfully, my dad texted back and was like, I'm going to get a refund on the tickets. So mm. I was just like, Ooh, but I totally get it. Right. Cause like we all want to do these things and we're sort of fighting against that and having to rethink what it means to think about the community and mm-hmm. to think about something that's just not even, doesn't seem like it's present to us right now. So mm-hmm. it's not, a, not affecting me then, you know. Yeah. yeah. And that's like, <laughs> and that's like one of the hard things especially for me wanting to be a nurse and wanting having it like some minimal exposure in the hospital over the past couple of weeks there's definitely it can be i think people disregard like the moral responsibility that it comes that comes into not exposing other people for the sake of other people right and so like i think some people can kind of forget and especially people like our age, I think being like in their Mm. early twenties can kind of have the sort of invincible mentality and can sort of forget how, while it may not affect them, it will affect all everybody around them, you know? And I think that's something that's like, I'm having to grapple with is like, as a, as a young person to like, try and hold fast to like, what is my duty as a citizen? to keep this from spreading in the community and also like um, my responsibilities, like what my faith obliges me to do, which is to within a community mindset, like what is the common good to be free from disease and how do I play a part in that is to obey the 
the civil sort of impositions, which is a hard thing to kind of wrap my mind around, but that's just something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Yeah, no, jumping off of Trey, I mean, it's a, it's calling us to, to go out of our way and to go out of ourselves, to not, not be selfish in certain ways. And I mean, I don't know, some people might think that that's like, big words, right? Or not big words, but that's like too strong of a word is, you know, going out is like selfish or like, you know, going around and doing things that aren't necessarily necessary at this time is selfish. But I mean, I don't know. I think that's the reality that we're living in right now. And people aren't used to living in that reality, especially in America, where we just live in a very individualistic society where, I mean, it's always kind of been okay, well, I want to do this thing right now, so I'm going to go do it. Or, you know, oh, I want to I want to go eat this thing, so I'm going to go eat it at this place, right? And now we're kind of being thrown out of our schedules. And there are still ways that we could go do selfish things, right? Like, I mean, the, the grocery store that I work at is like, there's a deli in it. And so you can like eat your sandwiches there, but like we had to close that place down. Like we had to put all the chairs up so people couldn't sit. And you'd have people who would be like, oh, are we not sitting here? Can we not sit anymore? And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. The, the, I mean, we closed that part of it, right? Because we're following, right? We're trusting our governor and we're trusting that like, this is a, a good mandate to follow. Um, but also it's like, you know, we want to look out for our community and make sure that it's not, we're not spreading the disease. Well, in... um some of our various group chats, we've had some interesting responses to mass being canceled. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Talk about it. Well, to the extent that you can. So I know that some just as reality have been like, I'm sad. I'm, I'm going to miss the Eucharist. And then some I've talked to have really struggled with, I'm going to miss the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And then one in our Christ the King alumni group have been like some really beautiful reactions as far as offering spiritual communions and also offering communion for those who may have been persecuted and under like government communist rule and who may only be able to receive the Eucharist four or five times a year. So just trying to unite our sacrifices right now with those who it may be a reality. Right. So just like a lot of varied reactions in that way, acknowledging the reality that it's hard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to have, um, what's a good way to put this, the right way of seeing this, you know, I guess I've seen some reactions online where people have sort of criticized the bishops who I think nearly all of them or, Nearly, I should say, nearly all of them in the U.S. have decided to close public masses at this point, um, and they've taken some heat. Um, and there are reactions to those reactions, which are sort of like, uh, you know, like these dumb religious people. Like, don't, don't they understand science? This is more of this, you know, just like pine the sky faith stuff or whatever. Um, and it. You know, I guess the the correct way to see this is that there's 
you know, on the on the first thing to say is number one, the people who are upset about mass being closed to the public. I mean, there's that's a. I think it's an important reaction, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily that you, you know, I would, I don't criticize the bishops for doing it and I see the good in what they're doing, but there is something beautiful in recognizing that um, the Eucharist and just the celebration of mass is, it's the most important thing that we could ever do. I mean, that's sort of like, that's in literally written into my family rule on top of our fireplace right now is mass is the most important thing that we do. And it's okay to like hurt you know, for our inability to participate in it the normal way. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I don't think faith is, clearly the church teaches that faith is not opposed to science and faith is not opposed to um, legitimate measures by our political authorities to try and serve the common good. I mean, they're they're supposed to line up. And so, you know, I think it's... um a prudent decision by, for instance, Bishop Duca to have made the decision that he did and to say there's no more public masses. And it does give us a chance to sort of pine. You know, we talked about in our last uh, podcast, Augustine and stretching the heart out, which, you know, just makes that longing and makes that ability to receive the Lord even greater when it finally comes. And this is a chance for us to do that, to really have this longing grow inside of us. And I couldn't help but think of um, when I went to Mexico at one point in college and visited these, you know, little communities outside of the city. I want to say the city was Saltillo that we were at, but they just never have mass, you know. And we had a priest with us, and we sort of like blew the dust off the door of the church in that town, and. You know, someone had to get on top of somebody's shoulders to like ring the bell to let people know that there was going to be mass and to see just, it was such a beautiful sight. Like the people of this very poor village throwing on the best clothes that they possibly had. The kids were like running over to the church. There were boys who were just like so excited to be altar mm-hmm. servers. You know, they just like never get mass. And it was, I was just stunned, you know, and we take it for granted that. You know, literally, I can go walk seven minutes to St. Patrick's in my neighborhood and, you know, go to Mass there. So, I don't know. It's a chance for us to, as you said, at least to commune with those people and other people who don't get the sacraments as often. Yeah, with with me, whenever I heard the news, it's kind of like, I viewed it through a lens of saying, oh, like, that makes sense, right? That makes sense. You know, it's to try and help the spreading. But, like, whenever I, like, kind of was driving home that night, and started to really think about it. I was like, wait, I, I, it's not that like, I'm not choosing to not go to mass. It's like, I literally can't, you know, like it's not an option. And I think that there was the difference. And even just like really talking with Jesus about it, this is something that Catherine and I have kind of talked about is like, it's in a sense, very liturgically uh, seasonal to be in, which is like, it's a very Lenten experience. I feel like we're all kind of being thrown into our own deserts, so to say. Like, we we can't just, you know, go out and do this and go out and do that and kind of just, like, mindlessly uh, fill our days with whatever. It's like a lot of us are either staying at home all day. Um, There's not as much to distract us because we don't have work. Right now, we're not in school. Um, And so, I think 
even spiritually, it's been a sort of Lenten desert experience. Did Catherine say the desert part? Because she loves the desert. I don't like the desert. I like caves more, but I do feel like my room is now a cave that I just don't leave. I put all the lights off and I just oh, sit. Your um, dream. I know, right? <laughs> but no, to go off of that, uh, it's going to be so awesome, right? Hopefully, 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 right? We can celebrate Easter, right? Um, but even if we if we can't, right? I mean, we can celebrate in our own ways, but even if we can't celebrate um, in the liturgy, how great it's going to be to just receive the Eucharist again, right? Like that first time that you receive it again, it's going to be, I'm just, that's what I focus on right now is just, oh, that's going to be so great. And I'm so excited for that. And it is kind of like Dr. Pedraza was saying, it is this kind of like stretching of the heart in this interim period time where we don't really know when we're going to receive the Eucharist again. Um, it's a stretching of the heart so that we long and we desire more for the Eucharist. Um, if we, if we let our hearts desire that. So I'm, I'm just, I'm more excited to receive the Eucharist again, but I think that might just be me being an optimistic person. And that's just where my head goes to immediately. But yeah, I don't know if we, if we don't, if we don't liturgically celebrate Easter, I'm sure. I mean, obviously it's still going to be celebrated, but not with a public mass. I don't know. I don't know what I'd do to celebrate. Probably like make brownies or something. I don't know. <laughs> with my stockpiled brownies mix that I have yeah. in my house. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. I, I was thinking last night during my prayer time that moments of suffering like this really test the metal of our doctrinal belief. Mm. And a, a much lighter situation when I first graduated from college and and then I stayed to get my master's degree right after. And then I, when I graduated with that and I got my first uh, high school teaching job and I was in upstate New York and it was an hour commute on country roads. It was nice that there was no traffic, but a country road, an hour commute to go to that school and teach. And I did this every day and I had no community at the time. And when you do this for a year and whenever Sundays roll around and you go to mass, like there's, there's nothing like the experience of loneliness and having to go to mass by yourself and not knowing anybody in the place. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I would go and it would just struck me. You know, there were times where I in conversation with the Lord would have to say like, I'm doing this because I believe in you. Like, like I, I know this is real. Um, as difficult as this is. And it, it just kind of, that came back to me last night in mm -hmm. the situation that we're currently in. This really tests the metal of our belief that, you know, even though we can't go, there are still priests ordained by bishops, ordained in some sense by Jesus Christ, who are still offering the body and blood of our Lord and his sacrifice to the Father on behalf of the people. And that's still bearing fruit for the world, even that you can't be there, you know? It, and mm -hmm. so, you know, mass is not just this formative cultural right, even though it is, and I'm glad that it is, but it's, there's this reality that's actually going on in every single mass. And now we got to believe it and try to spiritually commune with it. Mm -hmm. 
Did you guys see the article where the priest asked all of his parish to send a picture of themselves and he put it in each pew of the church and he offered mass for them? Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. No, that's awesome. That's, it's, that's amazing. It's really beautiful. It's he was it was like selfies and family <laughs> pictures and but it was amazing. And I mean cuz no one was in the church cuz they weren't allowed, you know. Yeah. But he offered the Eucharist and behind him is all the pictures. Nice. We can send yeah. pictures of our faces to Father Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> the little ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, uh, this thing, this experience that we're all going through, I think is a you know an appropriate moment to be thinking about today's topic when it comes to loneliness and community. I just talked to my brother uh, last night, the first time we had talked amidst the coronavirus chaos, and he was telling me that on Saturday, he was at this birthday party, and he's in New Jersey, and they had just come out with like the rules about how social distancing, and so he was joking that they were all kind of just like, oh, well, no, no hugs or handshakes. They just kind of like touched elbows and kind of <laughs> laughed about it, but then after a while, they all kind of talked about it, and it was like, we feel guilty, like even just like being here, you know, like this is, this is weird just to get together in a small gathering and, you know, talk about putting in focus the desire that we all have for community, but also having to experience some isolation and some solitude during these times. So um, maybe just to open things up on the issue of loneliness and community, I'd love to hear your own experiences of what that's been like in your life, you know, especially somewhat recently. Um, but what's it been like, your own experience of loneliness and trying to build community with other people? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> I don't know if I can say much outside of that besides just like, um, I don't know. I think I had a really tight knit community in high school. It was like a group of like me and three other people that was really tight knit and close. And I think that's, you know, I feel like I was lucky to have that kind of high school experience where I did have uh, friends who like were really, really close to me and I was really close to them and we all cared about each other and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I went to college and college was just, I started at LSU, which was a bigger community. And, um, at LSU, I felt like I needed to be friends with like 50 people or else I wasn't, you know, or else I like, I wasn't part of a community. I wasn't loved. Like, you know, all those kind of lies where it's just like, oh, I need to be friends with like literally everybody that I ever see or else, you know, I'm just, or else I'm a loser and I'm alone. Um, so that was definitely something that I struggled with there and then even coming even coming to you know this university for you like it's just such a different it's such a different place than LSU and partly that's because you know it's just smaller um, it like it is Catherine yeah <laughs> but yeah it's just it's just smaller and I mean I've really struggled to find, find community here um it's something that it, you know, you keep thinking it's going to get better. And in some, in some instances it has, right. I feel like, you know, us and the theology majors, right. We really know each other. 
Um, the trolling better, community in Dr. Boria's class. I mean, the trolling and meme community, especially recently, has um, <laughs> been just such a joy, right? A joy to watch, but also it's like it makes you feel like you're part of something. But I'm joking. There's also you need depth too. Oh yeah, yeah. No, and I yeah. I, I, yes, <laughs> I vibe with you, Elise. Um, no, but I think is it we, it is a two part vibe, but we do, our community does uh, lack this sort of depth. And I think I talked with a friend recently and she was like, you know, Catherine, you are just in a transition period. And so like, life's not always going to be like this. Um, like you t- talked about Dr. Pedraza, like being, you know, teaching a place alone for like a year. Um, I feel like I, especially am in just this transition period where like, and a lot of the theology majors too, right. We're either, you know, have full-time jobs and don't have time. Right. Or, you know, we're still, we have our other friend groups. So I don't know. It's weird. I think the, the struggle that I find with being in a community and having friendships and pursuing that is, and this is something that I've found, especially in college is just it needs to be a two-way pursuit or else it's just draining. And I feel like recently it's like, I want community and I want to give and I want all of this stuff, but I can't, or I do give, but it's not reciprocated in some instances. Mm. And so that's just, it's hard to give and to give and to give and to either not receive or not know that I'm receiving or not just mm. accept that I'm receiving, right? Because that could be it too. I am like people are trying to give me stuff, and I'm just like, oh no, that's not, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I think it is so easy to feel like I'm lonely, right? But that's also just something that's happened throughout college. Whether I was at a big university, right, I felt lonely there. But even at the small university, right, there's still times that I feel lonely and that I feel like, you know. I don't know, but I feel lonely. But then also part of that is just like, you have to learn how to be alone and be okay with being alone, um, mm. which I've gotten better at, but I don't know. Uh. <laughs> no, that was, that was a good, honest, raw take. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. I hope. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So and what would you think? Um, I'm going to use your words. Yeah. I, community that lacks depth, right? So like, what does community with depth look like? Mm. In some cases, like, I don't know. I mean, I think back to, and my high school experience wasn't the best. I don't think anyone's high school experience was the best, right? But like the friends that I had in high school, I kind of maybe unfairly look to as a comparison for like, okay, is this a a deep friendship? Because I remember that friendship being just, we genuinely cared about one another. Right. And in a way that, that went past, how are you doing? Or like that kind of stuff, you know, we would ask about specifics and we would also just understand each other to a certain extent. Like, and that came from, being around each other a lot or like just routinely, like having these routines where we see each other habitually, I guess you could say. Um, And because of that, we were able to know each other better. And because we spent that time and got to know each other better, then 
right? That depth could kind of uh, develop, but also we went through a lot together, right? Um, So having those kind of shared experiences that kind of bonded us. But I don't know how, and I think that's the question that I'm still struggling with is how do you Hmm. build community and how do you do it in a way that's healthy, right? So that you're not just like, giving everything to this person and they're just like, ah, that's a lot, you know, how do you make it a healthy community? But also how do you, yeah. How do you make it something that is sustainable and that isn't going to have everyone burn out in like a week or two? I don't know. And I think that's something that I'm still kind of struggling with finding. Um, But also, I mean, I think it comes back to like, is it in front of my face? I'm not just not looking at it, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was great. You feel, other people feel free to chime in. I don't want to, you know. Yeah. Catherine, have- do, you look, do you look to the desert fathers? <laughs> you know, in some instances I'm like, oh yeah, I just, this is something that I totally like, this is, this is the bad thing that I sometimes fall back on is like, oh, well, no one wants to hang out with me. Okay, I'll just be alone and that's fine, right? And I can, I think that's why I liked the Desert Fathers so much, right? Especially last year when I was just like, oh, you know, it's okay. I don't need friends. I can just be in the desert and then I can exist (laughs) there, right? (laughs) It was almost like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. Like, I'll just, I'm almost like, it's almost like having friends in my mindset at that time was like having friends was weak. And it's like, ah, no, I don't need that. I can just, I can just survive by myself and just be okay. Which I mean, we're creatures that are made for community. So it doesn't, that doesn't work out very well. Uh, But, you know, Mm. I do like the Desert Fathers maybe for that reason though, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Trey, you and Catherine actually had at least one attempt where you tried to gather <laughs> people together last year, right? You want to tell us about that? Oh yeah, Trey, I'll 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 pass it off to you. You can that yeah yeah that it <laughs> happened, it did. Um, it's we've tried a couple of times. We've we tried have. to do <laughs> a couple of things of just like getting a group chat together, telling people that hey, this is happening. Um, having a date and then either nobody shows up or everybody drops like the day before. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is, which was especially like disheartening for me because one of them, I like just invited everybody over for dinner one night. Um, And so, you know, we got the nice, we got the big table out. We had like salad, bread, I had like three different entrees that everybody can kind of share. You had like boudin or something like that. I did. I had <laughs> boudin. I had chicken. I went to the store and I got all this good stuff. And then one person out of like 10 showed up. When was this? This, this was, was... Like this time last year, actually. Yeah. This time last year. And I remember just, and it was Catherine and I who kind of led it. I remember just turning to her afterwards and just be like, I'm very disheartened by this. Like, yeah. this is very discouraging. Especially, like, whenever you're the person who's trying to, like, get it started and trying to bring people together. And whether it's because, like, the other people don't necessarily want 
what you're trying to get together or they don't or they haven't experienced it therefore like they don't know like how awesome it is to have a tight-knit community like that um but for i mean we've tried probably four or five different things even like setting up like a hey we're just going to do something every friday y'all can come over we can just play board games and stuff and still like either everybody forgot or everyone was like oh, i can't make it and so it's just it's just frustrating it's very frustrating yeah it's gotta be super super awkward for the one person who shows up too right it was it It sure was was. both times both times it was only one person who showed up and i was like and like both of them (laughs) and like both of them were friends that like we knew Catherine and i knew them but it wasn't like we were great friends so it was like uh, it was like hello tell what if you're listening, they're really glad that you showed up. No, we are. We genuinely are. I think my my fear is like, oh my gosh, they're going to feel like they're just, they're, you know, third wheeling or something like that. And that's the thing that I would hate. So I'm just like, oh, how do I include you? Oh, oh. Like that's my mind through that whole experience. Right. But I think we could have been better at having them RSVP. Oh, that was I, that. See. I think that was one of our, or reminding them that it was happening. Because I think there, we, you there know. was, we, our intentions of getting, because like we wanted to like, I think our first go run at it turned, it, it went really quickly into a talk about Jesus way too prematurely. She was, okay. <laughs> you did okay. not <laughs> In my defense, right, we knew she was Christian and I was like, oh, I also thought, right, <laughs> I don't know why I thought this, but I thought, may- and maybe I'm wrong, right, but I thought non-denom people had really good relationships with Jesus. <laughs> not that they don't, not that they don't, right? I'm sure right. you have some who have, like, really good relationships with Jesus, but I thought, like, I thought, I guess I thought they were more charismatic, that's mm. probably what it was. So I was like, oh my gosh, they're total she's totally gonna like talk to me about her personal relationship with Jesus right now. Right. So I asked that. I asked her, hey, so like, how's your relationship with Jesus? Right. To which to which she responded, Wow, I've never been asked that before. <laughs> <laughs> it planted a seed tray. It planted a seed. And I'm sure, I'm sure, you know. One, two years from now, she's going to be like, wow, what is my relationship with Jesus? And then she's going to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I totally applaud you for trying. You know, when different things aren't working and you're trying different things. Hey, you know, know, it's quite an icebreaker, though. I (laughs) thought it was. And you know me. I'm someone who hates to make other people uncomfortable. So if I thought it would have made her uncomfortable, I wouldn't have said it. But I was just naive. I was young and dumb. <laughs> yeah, it's it was a it's a it's definitely it's definitely hard. Also, whenever you have people who you would really like to be friends with, like genuine, like intentional, genuine friendships, but like either that's not reciprocated on the other end, or even if it is, just in contact wise. They, they never really get back to you or it's difficult to find. Like they're always busy. So it's just, it's speaking from experience. It's very hard. 
yeah. to to get to have that. It is. Yeah. Elise, what you got cooking? Mm, you mean up back here? <laughs> no, I, I I know I know the supplies you've got. <laughs> um. Oof. Well, loneliness and community. I think Catherine said it right in one word. I mean, it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard. But and at Franciscan, it is. It's definitely a challenge for many reasons. Um, we're a commuter school. Um, although you would think it might be a little easier because LSU is huge. So it's 33,000, me and my best friends, you know, (laughs) um, but coming to Franciscan, you see there is true and beautiful, genuine people. So starting from that, I think the difficulty comes when you are still feeling lonely in community when there are genuine, beautiful people. Mm. So when that happens, you're like, Jesus, what, (laughs) what's going on here? You know? Mm. Um, So just some reflections that I've had and it's been from a lot of help from really genuine, beautiful people have been that, okay, am I hanging out with the wrong kind of people? And that's not really going on because they're, like I said, there's genuine, beautiful people here. Although something that I've shared has been there, something that I've struggled with has been an age difference because I'm old. You're not um, that old. <laughs> <laughs> although just, <laughs> just some things is that there are some struggles that I am in a different point in my life. And um, I feel like I'm in second college right now, which is fun. It's great. (laughs) Um, But uh, the other thing is that, okay, if I'm not hanging out with the wrong kind of people per se, am I sharing my heart with people, with a few genuine good people in my life? And that's been some of the best advice that I've gotten and the ones that have actually practically applied in my life to open up the loneliness epidemic that I think is spread. And um, at first coming from a religious order, I was like, I only share my heart and my soul with my religious spiritual director. What are you saying? (laughs) Um, And I think branching from there, there can be a few genuine, beautiful people in your life that you can open your heart up to and that can help you and guide you practically. And that, that requires trust. I mean, and so if you need to start praying the litany of trust from Therese, start it because trust is a huge thing. And I've seen lately in my life that when I've opened up the gate of trust, it's been really beautiful because I think it connects Catherine to what we've been reading in Trinity classes. When we first don't we might start to know ourselves, but when we like hide from ourselves or we want to kind of put a mask on, that is when we can't love fully. And then when we start to open ourselves up to a few people and they really know us and they help to keep us accountable, that's where a beautiful, genuine community can come in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it seems like this is um, something that's endemic to our country right now um it's sort of like we're all lonely 
together. <laughs> you know, <laughs> together and lonely. I don't know if you had a chance to read any of the articles that I sent out, but I just, I, I wanted to just briefly mention some of the things that stood out to me. So, and the first one that I want to pay attention to is the article from City Journal. And in it, the author is speaking about um, what's called the second demographic transition. And so, it seems to be that post-World War II, sociologists think that there is this transition from people relying on the traditional family as being the source of providing you know, food and shelter and sort of the basic necessities. And it, it transitioned to a, a sort of culture in which people were looking for self-fulfillment, you know, what it means to be happy. Um, can I get more and more consumer goods, goods that might be associated with luxury or something like that? And then some other things too, like education, you know, what what further education can I get? There's something more than just this, I guess, conventional way of family life. And then that coupled with um, the rise of the birth control pill, uh, and all of a sudden, you have an understanding of community that gets severed from kin or family members. And you get the rise of, say, you know, what you could call non-conventional households, households that have less kids becoming more and more common. And then all of a sudden you get a, a generation of people, like when they're older, there's no kin, you know? Like when you had more family members, more brothers and sisters, you got older and say you're in the nursing home or the hospital, you're probably going to have other family members that come visit. Now you've got people who are getting older and that's it. They're all that there is. There's no one coming to see them. And, you know, strikingly, the author noted in Japan, I actually want to read this uh, one paragraph, which just, this is shocking, but the author says, for a fuller picture of the brave new kinless world, Consider Japan, a country now in the throes of an epidemic of kodokushi, roughly translated as lonely deaths. Local Japanese papers regularly publish stories about kinless elderly whose deaths go unnoticed until the telltale smell of maggot-eaten flesh alerts neighbors. Such deaths are common enough that Japanese entrepreneurs have created an industry of cleaning companies for dealing with their after-effects. Last year, a reporter watched as workers clad in full-body protective gear from one of those companies with the chilling name Next disinfected the apartment of Hiroki, a 50-year-old, 54-year-old divorced man with no children. No one noticed that he had been gone for four months, and even then, it was only because Hiroki's rent money, which had been automatically deducted from a savings account, had dried up. A representative of the building's management company finally discovered his decomposed remains on a soiled futon. Ooh, talk about a picture, right? Like an icon of loneliness in the Western world. And then the other one that I'll just bring um, to mind here is the study by Cigna. It's an insurance company, and they did a study of 20,000 American adults, so 18 or older. And the summary of those results are that Nearly half, 47% of Americans report that sometimes or always they feel alone or left out. 47%, that's significant. One in four, 
27% rarely or never feel as though there are people who really understand them. Two in five, 43%, sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they are isolated from others. One in five people report they rarely or never feel close to people or feel like there are people that they can talk to. And only about half of Americans, 53%, have meaningful in-person social interactions, such as having an extended conversation with a friend or spending quality time with family on a daily basis. Maybe I'll throw this one in here too. Gen, Gen Z is the loneliest generation, according to their study, and claims to be in worse health than older generations. So yeah, you know, we're all lonely together. Dr. Miner, I um, was wondering if there are theological resources that you know we could call upon um, that might help us, I guess, in thinking through this issue of you know the loneliness epidemic and our search for community. So, being the good Bayou Thomist that you are, you know what it what you got for us. Well, I was just thinking while you were speaking. Not necessarily theological resources, but how endemic to our society competitiveness is and how a constant sense of competitiveness, which is not necessarily fostered by our our economy, well, which is not necessarily caused by our economy, but is definitely consonant with it. We live in a very competitive economy, competitive education system. Everything's about getting up, getting more, beating other people, how that can kind of produce a genuine sense of instability and fear, which I think a lot of us feel the great majority of the time is that we are both unstable and afraid. And the difficulty with that is that building community requires, as you've all said, some kind of sense of vulnerability and trust. Like if you can't be vulnerable with someone, you'll never have some kind of deeper with them. But if every single person with whom you come into contact is some kind of um, competitor, uh, you're never going to be able to trust them. And this is just kind of the way we see each other. We see ourselves as isolated individuals where my success and your success can't happen together. And so in some fundamental level, we are. We're in competition. So you can only have unstable relationships with people, but certainly not friendships. And it's a real tragedy. And I think we see the fallout with what people are experiencing with loneliness. As far as the way I understand friendship, I mean, um, those things I just said are kind of taken basically straight out of Aquinas, is that we need a kind of, we need to rethink ourselves and the way we relate to God, to each other, to the natural environment, to pretty much everything in a non-competitive key. And that's super difficult, in part because we live in a practically atheistic age, I'll say, where since we've lost, we've lost a focus on not only God, who can be shared by many people, but also because we live in a kind of empiricist age on other goods that can be shared by people, which are typically spiritual goods, right? If you, if you lose those two things, 
and you see every good is either mine or yours and are somehow in competition, then we really are in competition with each other. So we really got to think about it totally differently. And I find that Aquinas and Aquinas's account of friendship is the more I read and reread it, the more I realize how deeply true it is and how much I suck at living it. But there's that kind of, the word that comes to mind is regurgitation, but that's not the right word. Some kind of meditation or kind of, I keep coming back to the account, just reading more about it. And it kind of slowly, it just kind of seeps in. So I'll give you, a, I'll give you the kind of basics of Aquinas's account. And maybe then we can talk about how that can be applied more practically. So the, the kind of first and most important structural change we need in our thought is the way we think about what something is good. So the way Aquinas thinks about something good is good is a kind of objective notion. It's something we love. We don't make something good. We discover it as good. And when we love something that's good, it perfects us. So we're kind of like, we're imperfect beings. We're beings on the way. We're beings that are both uh, perfected and are perfected by loving. And so it's an easy way to, it's one of our fundamental mistakes that we tend to think about things are only good because I want them, not I want them because they're good. So that's the kind of first thing we've got to fix. And then that love is then my response to something which is good. Aquinas calls it a, a complacencia affectus ad bonum amatum. So it's a, it's like a resting or a, a conjunction, a fitting to something good loved. That's really what love is, is a conjunction or a connection to something that's good. And when we love something that's good, it does things to us. I mean, love is such a weird thing. I literally can take something and then take it and form myself according to that thing or that person. Like I take that person into myself. There's like this real mutual, there's at least an indwelling of that thing in my heart when I love it. So I become bonded with it. I enter into union with it. I become, um, in some sense, I stand outside myself by loving it because it comes into me. In some sense, I go out into it. So I kind of stand out myself. I become zealous for that thing. Like you can tell what people love, they're zealous for it right? It's mostly football teams, but um, it changes my activity when I love something and I, I become soft toward it, right? I'm wounded by that thing because it becomes a part of who I am. And I mean, this is the real basis of friendship is when we take that love and we don't just love things for us, but we love um, certain things that can be shared by all of us. That's the real basis of a friendship. Aquinas calls it a communicatio in the good. Um, when you don't have a certain, when you don't have um, a, a material good in mind necessarily, which can only be mine or yours, right? You can't like both eat the same piece of pizza or something like that. Uh, when you have more spiritual goods that you can both love, it can form both of you at the same time and thereby draw you closer to each other. And so Aquinas says in friendship, uh, it, it requires like four things, he says. It requires benevolence. Benevolence just means I will the good, whatever good we love, for the other person. 
Now, notice how that has to be some kind of good you can share at the same time that perfects both of you simultaneously, or my willing it for you cannot be willing it for myself. It becomes competitive, right? If I give you the piece of pizza, I don't get the piece of pizza. But with something like uh, truth, goodness, beauty, even like things like victory or the common good, the way we tend to think of that like that, if I will it for you, I'm actually still willing it for me because it perfects both of us at the same time. So you have to have benevolence. So I have to will that good for the other person. And that brings us into union. Uh, My willing that good for you has to be mutual. So you both have to have that benevolence for one another, right? I love a lot of people. They don't love me. We're not friends. Um, It has to be manifested to the other. So you have to have manifested to the other your benevolence for them. And that also requires manifesting yourself to the other so that they can love you uh, because true French friendship has to be based on the truth. You can't be formed by a figment of your imagination, right? You're not going to take it into your heart, enter into union and be zealous for something that's you've made up or that's based on a lie. So there has to be manifestation. And then there also has to be that sharing of the goods in life, which is that the shared goods that you will for each other and the shared life based on those goods that you will for each other. And that's why Aquinas following Aristotle divides friendships into three types, only one of which is really friendship because only one of which has a good you can share at the same time. Right. He talks about the friendships of utility and that's basically where a common you're in some way useful to someone else. And so you have this relationship, but because the, what actually bring you brings you together can't be shared at the same time, or you're not sharing it. Like you have a business relationship or a study partner. You can't actually take someone else's grade or you take their grade or their knowledge or your knowledge, right? You can. um, And so you end up in a friendship of utility since the good isn't shared, isn't a common good. You're actually treating the other person as a kind of means to something that terminates in your benefit. And they're doing the same to you. That's not a bad thing necessarily, right? We do this all the time. Um, It's what's really the difference there is that shared good. Same with the friendships of pleasure, he says, right? Because pleasure ultimately terminates in one or the other person. Pleasure can't be a shared good. And so it's a, it's a type of friendship right? A friendship of pleasure where you both find pleasure in each other or pleasure in some third kind of activity like bowling or something. But if the friendship's not based on the shared good itself, it's not going to be the deepest and most lasting type of friendship. That's why Aquinas especially talks about the friendship of virtue being the deepest type of friendship, in part because virtue is something that you can only really pursue together. And it can be really shared in some fundamental sense by both of you. And and so when I possess virtue and you possess virtue and you will virtue for the other person, it becomes a real shared pursuit where you can both succeed at the same time. And you actually do only succeed at the same time and to the same degree that your, your teammates succeed. And so it requires a real dependence on one another. But it also really conforms you to the other person. Remember when I talked about love at the beginning, how it takes the form of the other person and like draws it into your heart. If you're both pursuing the same shared good, 
then you both become formed by that good and you both will it for the other. And so the other comes to dwell within you as well. So you really, it conforms you to the other because you will the good for the other and for yourself all at the same time. So there's this real kind of Trinitarian mystery to the indwelling that happens in friendship. And this is why Aquinas talks about friends in this sense being another self, right? Because you seek the other's good as your own good. You entrust yourself to the other. Mm. And that's why that, and then this basis on this, you have it right based on the good. You have the shared life and the effective union of each of your loves that will seek some in some way to be together. So Aquinas talks about this love as an affective union, which we always have for everything we love, but it'll automatically seek an effective union. Um, so you'll seek to share time, share in those um, goods that you seek together, uh, deliberate together, manifest yourself to one another, um, share in what's specifically human. So you'll talk about Aquinas together. Um, <laughs> and you'll, you'll delight in each other's goods, right? Aquinas talks about how we can't, we can't always be doing the virtuous thing. That's why you need <laughs> friends because you can delight in their virtuous actions because they're yours in some fundamental sense, because you've taken them into yourself. You're on the same team. So when they succeed, you succeed. And that's the way to a truly kind of happy life because you can constantly be rejoicing because someone on your team at least is doing, is reaching your shared goal. Um, yeah. Maybe to, to, so for people who are going to listen to this, who aren't theology majors or something, so to sort of break down a few of the things that you just said that I think are super helpful and applicable to this topic. So like, first, it's this truth that the greater a good is, the more uh, diffusive or shareable, like inexhaustible that thing is, right? So we're, we tend to be uh we swim in a world of like material goods which tends to make us think about goods as like well either i get it or you get it and it makes right. us competitors but you know think of the good of um truth or justice like just because you know something doesn't uh take away the fact that i get to know it too you know right or and the and the virtues uh are all things that we're able to grow in together and the more that catherine um, becomes just, it doesn't keep me from being just, you know? And, That's right. And, and it's greatest, actually to your benefit, yeah. right. to your benefit, if you end up being on the the paying end of justice, so to speak, because it's way more your benefit that you be <laughs> just and good than if you be unjust and wealthy or right. something yeah. else, right? Right, right, yeah. right. And with the greatest good being God, like the the one that we could all share in utterly inexhaustible. Um, and then I was also thinking, um, you know, Catherine's comment about, you know, a depth of community, a depth of friendship. You know, when it comes to those three types of friendship, utility, pleasure, or a, friend, a virtuous friendship, most of us and most of our dealings operate with the first two kinds of friendship. And as you said, there are places for that, right? Like a study buddy, you know, the friendship yeah. of utility, that's great. You know, so we need study buddies um, and a bowling buddy or a fishing buddy, a friendship of pleasure. Okay. Awesome. You know, that's, that happens. Um, but you know, the, the depth of friendship that I hear Catherine, that you're really looking for is the virtuous friendship. 
right? But that yeah. that that takes people who are virtuous. Which, by the way, Aristotle, mm-hmm. you know, Thomas's Saint Thomas is drawing on Aristotle. He actually says these are rare friendships. Like you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna have like tons of them. You know, despite my students who seem to call everybody their best friends. You know, it's <laughs> like <laughs> like for Aristotle, you can only have like a small number of them. <laughs> I think that's yeah, and I think Aquinas would agree. Um, although he democratizes Aristotle's account significantly sure. uh, by saying that it doesn't require um, necessarily commonality and virtue right off the bat, but it at least requires commonality of humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So where Aristotle he, he, probably wouldn't think you could be friends with like someone who's way your subordinate or something. I think right. Aquinas but, disagrees with that. Well, well Aquinas My, has to do that because we have friendship with God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aristotle thinks like a king and a peasant, even though those are anachronistic terms for him, like those aren't, uh, you're not going to be friends, you know, like there's... Can I be friends with my dog. Can that, <laughs> can that happen? <laughs> uh, in some sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know. Um, I, I wanted to throw in some things here that are Thomistic as well, um, though I want to get at it through John Paul II. So Dr. Meinert's a Aquinas scholar, and I'm a JP2 scholar. So for JP2, he's really building off of St. Thomas's thoughts, and but he's going to have, I, I guess he wants to emphasize certain things, and there are certain um, I guess, ideas that he thinks might enrich what St. Thomas is saying. I guess one of the things that I should start off by saying is, I, I feel like JP2 scholars are like obliged to say this. He often gets condensed to like theology of the body and like sexual ethics and... Wait, I thought that's all he wrote about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like his, his, like his one contribution was free, total, faithful, fruitful, right? Um, I'm pretty but- sure that was Paul VI, <laughs> right? Theology of the body. Yeah, yeah. I thought that just defines him. Yeah. So, I, to really get at the heart of what he's after and looking at the human person, I think what he's after is actually the topic that we're talking about. He's thinking about communion and how everyone is made for communion, and not just in terms of marriage or family, but more largely he has in focus our communion in the body of Christ that is the church, and then ultimately our communion with the three persons of the Trinity. So that, that's sort of like the, the heart of what he's trying to do. Um, and Dr. Minert talked about how we're all sort of like on this way of becoming, you know, like humans are this like weird mixture of both being and becoming. So there's like something that's been given to us when we're created our nature, but there it's uh, laden with this power, you know, like this uh, potency to use the Thomistic and Aristotelian term, right? It's, it's not just, sometimes we think of potential as like, oh, you, you know, that he, he had potential, you know, like he could have had it, but he didn't. But it's it's really this power that's really latent in human nature that gives you the ability when you intentionally act towards virtue that you fulfill yourself. Um, and not only do you do that, but it, it it's not like a selfish thing, but just like St. Thomas is saying, virtue can be shared. And so it's actually in loving other people that you are actually going to fulfill yourself. It's kind of like a crazy thing. How do I... 
how do I become happy? Love other people, you know, and you just as a, the byproduct, so to speak, is going to be you becoming fulfilled. Um, and so, one of the fundamental ideas of John Paul II's um, anthropology is there are original experiences that everyone, in some sense, goes through. And we often think of experience as a very isolating thing. Like, a, that's my experience, so you can't really have it. You could try to empathize with me or whatever. But for, for JP2, there are some fundamental experiences that everyone has. And one of them is the experience of solitude. You know, he calls it original solitude, which is really fitting for our topic in times like this. And so, um, trying to figure out how in depth or light I should go here, but I'll put it like this. So, we are body and soul, and it's a really profound mystery that we're made in this way because, you know, our souls are spirits, and spirits are unified. They're like centers of unification. They, they're transcendent, so to speak. And bodies, on the other hand, are more, uh, you can divide them into parts. They... uh they say something about our relatedness to the rest of the world because it extends ourselves sort of like in creation and we experience the you know, sort of the multiplicity of creation through our bodies. So we're, we're humans are like this weird mixture of uh, this unifying principle and this like relating principle. Um, but for JP too, that's an awesome thing that we sort of both have this because it, it, um, it ultimately means that we are made for insertion into the body of Christ, the one in which many are all apart. You know, it's, it says something about ultimately what we're made for. We're made to be, to belong to this thing, to this person actually, where we're all unified together and yet there, we still have like the beauty of our multiplicity at the same time. It's very Trinitarian too, right? Like one and three, that sort of a thing. And Adam, when he's in the garden, has this experience through his body of solitude. Um, he knows because it, through his body that he's a rational creature, that he has this spiritual soul because he's different than all the other animals. He names them, but finds them, you know, not being the suitable partner, as you all know. Um, and it's only until the creation of Eve that he finds the one who's bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. But this experience of solitude being different than the rest of creation, I think is, um, we should think of it as bittersweet. It's, there's something good about it and there's something mm, lacking. I'll, I'll put it like that. So the good thing is that when humans recognize that we are different than the rest of creation and that we transcend it in some way, that's already a sign that we have this rational nature that God has made us with, you know, like, Think of the time that you maybe were walking in the beauty of creation and you were sort of experiencing it, even at the height of that sort of natural ecstasy, so to speak, there's still something in you that recognizes like, this is fleeting. Like, I love it. Like, this is really beautiful to soak in this sunset, um, but it's going to go. And I'm still like greater than this. Like I was made for something more than this. Um, so it, 
if you can sort of understand that experience, then you can see why solitude is such a bittersweet thing. It's like, oh, it's like I've been given something that's really amazing that makes me greater than everything. But at the same time, there's something lacking. Like I, I still need to be fulfilled by communing with something, you know? Um, I don't know. It's sort of this beautiful mystery that human beings experience solitude like this. And all this just goes to say that in these moments where we're isolated from one another with social distancing and even apart from the coronavirus being um, lonely, there's actually like a gift that's built into solitude. And if used wisely, it could be a moment to reflect upon how you were made for God and how you were made for communion with other persons. And I worry that we're going to um, fill this space with Netflix binges and, you know, other things and sort of miss out. I mean, me personally, like I've been glued to my phone, which I kind of hate over the past few days. It's been part of my Lenten disciplines to be detached from my phone. And I've convinced myself like, oh, for the common good, I need to be, you know, be knowing what, what's going on there. And there's, there's something that's true with that. Like I do need to know um, some of these things, but then, then I stay on, you know, and like, keep on scrolling and then it's like ah crap yeah. you know like i'm <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm filling the solitude with junk instead of letting this desire in my heart um sort of continue to pine for our lord um and then the last thing i'll say about jp2 um that's related to this is we when he says that we're made for communion he has this idea of he calls it participation he means it in his own unique way, even though other you know philosophers have used that word. But to get at it, he contrasts participation in community with membership. So there's this awesome part in The Acting Person, which is his main philosophical work, where he's reflecting upon um, being a student and being a worker. And mind you, JP2 is notorious for never giving examples in his writing. Like people hate reading him because it's just like, oh, you feel like you're just hacking at things all over the place and going in circles. And he never gives any examples. And this is like one of the rare moments where he gives you an example. And I think it's cool because he's drawing upon his own experience clearly because he was a worker at the rock quarry and at the chemical plant during the war. And he was a student and then an underground seminarian. So the fact that he brings up these workers and these students, he says, and it's a very Thomistic thing, but he's going to add to it. He says, so if you have a bunch of workers and they ha- if they're charged with digging a trench, or you have a bunch of students and they're charged with listening to a lecture, he says, there's a difference between being a member of that community and participating in that community. Participating is what he really wants. But it is possible to just do it as a member. In other words, you're like, oh, I could be numbered among them. I'm one of the workers at the trench. Like workers can dig a trench without ever really having communed with one another, apart from the objective thing of like, we're digging the trench together. And that's something. I mean, that's not nothing, you know? Like digging the trench together is something. Um, listening to a lecture by a teacher is something. But what JP2 means by participation is that you, recognize both your own dignity as a human person and the dignity of other people. And they have something that they're contributing to the common good. And you know it, that you're contributing, and you know it, that they're contributing to the common good. 
And only when there's this mutual recognition, this sort of reciprocity, so to speak, like Dr. Meinert was saying, can you really call it participation? And I think this is enlightening because a lot of times when, say, we gather for lunch, um, for listeners who might not know, the theology community tries to gather for lunches on Mondays. It's going to be totally weird, you know, in the <laughs> coronavirus days, but I actually still think we should do it via Zoom. But you could, there's a difference between just being like a member and numbered among us on one of the theology people that goes. Um, and you could even sit in that room, but feel like you never were a participant in the community. Like, like nobody recognized that you had something to give to that community. Nobody received it. Um, and JP2 wants to say like genuine communities have this way of allowing each person to act for the good of the community and they fulfill themselves at the same time while they're doing it. You know, that like there's something powerful about that. So I don't know, for me, that's something that I think we have to work on in cultivating friendships with other people. Cause sometimes what we think our friendships are actually just us being members together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but let's open it up. I mean, anything that we've talked about with St. Thomas and John Paul II, how might this apply to, you know, loneliness and community? Yes, actually, your last line, Dr. Pedraza, really, really kind of hit it home for something I've kind of been thinking about throughout the course of our discussion is like some of the most draining times in my life have been whenever I'm in too large of a community that's not necessarily, I'm kind of seen as like somebody who's just part of the community and not like as somebody to be actively poured into. You know, so I think even in Catholic circles, we're guilty of this. Is in, is that we have these large, um, uh, like communities, uh, at either Catholic centers or whatever, and you're a part of the community by just virtue of being a Catholic. You know, that's your that's your ticket in. Is are you Catholic? Oh, okay, cool. You're part of the community, um, and not to say that that's intrinsically bad but i think it it takes away from the active participation part you know and like the friendships i've experienced in those kind of big circles have been very draining because like it's kind of like i'm like we only really have conversations when we run into each other you know and it's like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. It's like, oh, cool. Why haven't you reached out? <laughs> you know? Or it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, Trey, like, I never see you anymore. I was like, oh, cool. Have you texted me? Or have you called me? You know? It's like, it's such, it, these are like a lot of friendships that are like really built out of, like, just kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, convenience. Um, and I think that's, I've had a similar experience as Catherine spoke to earlier, just like friendships that lack depth and intentionality and it's kind of just oh we're in the same place we like the same things cool so we're friends now you know um and especially that's been something that's just difficult to kind of recognize like oh this is happening like this is the this for a while i really wrestled for months on in and trying to figure out why is it weird that i feel like this in this big catholic community you know um it took me a while to like really put my finger on it, but I think even like in our large Catholic circles, this is a this is an issue that we fall into. 
um, of like lacking that intentionality and like that participation within. I think that's really beautiful, Trey. And also speaking off of what Dr. Minor and Dr. Pedraza said, first of all, yeah, you have to be vulnerable in community and you have to put yourself in a place that this is something we've talked about in the Franciscan community a lot, especially with our youth camp in the summer is you have to be uncomfortable. And once you put yourself in a place where you're uncomfortable in community and then you can open yourself up, you find out other people are really struggling too. Like the loneliness epidemic is out there. And once you're open with someone else, yeah, they're probably lonely too, or they're struggling with things in their own way. And that's when you can be honest with each other. And I think build that relationship of trust that Dr. Minor was talking about trust and vulnerability. And then going off of what Dr. Pedraza was saying, communion reminded me of just the longing that we talked about earlier with the Eucharist and how if we really are struggling and we're lonely, this is something I spoke about with the priest. Those are the times that we can really stretch that longing in our heart. And those are the times that we can call out for Jesus instead of grabbing that box of Thin Mints, grabbing your Netflix (laughs) account and watching those three seasons. I mean, really, those are the times that we are called to communion with Christ. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. But that's the priest was like, that's the time that you tell him it's hard. Mm -hmm. Because he's there. And he already knows it's hard. But that's when you really tell him it's hard. And And to go off of, oh, no, you. No, you. I was going to say, anytime you have some kind of effective union with something where you love it, you're going to seek some kind of effective union to have that realized in a kind of full physical presence, bodily, personal way. And that's why going without the Eucharist is so difficult. If you have that effective union, it like cuts at the very thrust of your love to seek that effective union. Aquinas has this beautiful passage about the Eucharist. He says, friends, you know friends by the joy they get in dwelling with one another. So because Christ called us friends, he willed it that he should dwell with us in the Eucharist. And so having to go without the Eucharist is a, is a real trial in a friendship. It's like having a friend that you can't, you can't be with for an extended period of time, but you still love them deeply. Um, and that's, that's that sense of, it's both a test, like, do I really love Christ? Right? Do I want that effective union? But also, a, as we've said, a stretching of that effective union, that love um, in the future. To go back even to what Elise said earlier, like, I know for me personally, and I think this is something that's shared amongst people who feel lonely. Um, when I do feel lonely, it's this kind of tendency to just like dog on myself and to, to kind of go into this like, you know, self-pity party where you just kind of wallow and you say, oh, I'm a loser. Okay, well, we're here, you know? Um, but I think a lot of what you, Dr. Pedraza and you, Dr. Minor, talked about gives a lot of hope and gives a lot of like, even to say just like there are virtuous friends out there, right? And they're few and far between, but to know that they are out there and to know that, you know, you might be in a transition period, right? Where you're not going to be, um, in this super huge community. That's okay. And that doesn't mean that 
especially for me when I'm in those places of transition, I find myself trying to reach and to grasp at the the closest person that I can find and try to like squeeze friendship out of them, which isn't, it doesn't work like that, right? Because of course I will be the one giving. And if they don't want that friendship, they'll be the one who just, you know, kind of is like, oh, not that I'm rejecting mm-hmm. you. I'm just like, oh, I'm not there. Right. Um, but what Elise said is, you know, to, to run to Christ and to tell him, right. Um, and to really push into that, um, push into Christ when you are in, when you find yourself in this season of, uh, solitude, um, to, to push into Christ and to really lean into him, um, is so vital. But yeah. yeah. It's tough the way I see it. And in some sense, we're lonely on a kind of superficial level because the great majority of our friendships are friendships of utility and pleasure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's absolutely true that we're very rarely in spaces and with people who see us for anything more than the pleasure they get out of that relationship or how useful we are to them. Boom. And that is really, <laughs> that's super awful, right? Mm-hmm that no one's really willing any of those goods for you. And so there's no kind of shared pursuit of anything. But I think even with, even with friendships of virtue, you're still going to find uh, they are rare. They're necessary to be happy. But even within those, I think you're still going to find a kind of dissatisfaction, that kind of that JP2 sense of isolation that pushes you toward that friendship with Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still that loneliness that, will still remain in some sense that kind of pushes you further. Yeah. I wonder if part of the challenge at a university like ours, where it's a commuter school is that it cuts away a lot of the friendships of utility and pleasure that most people just fill their times with, you know, like Mm -hmm. on, on big residential campuses, it's like, Oh yeah, I'm friends with all these people in my fraternity. Like, Oh, I'm friends with all these people. But really if, you know, if we were just cutting out how many of them were friendships of utility and pleasure, we'd all be like, oh, crap, I'm lonely, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now <laughs> we're like faced with like the reality even more, on, you know, in a commuter sort of school. And so it it's really going to push us to think about where are those virtuous friendships? Like, who are the people, you know, the good, beautiful people, as Elise said, <laughs> you know, that, that I'm... I'm going to have to be vulnerable with, you know, like there's going to have to be some effort uh, at um, mutuality, reciprocity, um, or else, <laughs> you know, we do have a name for friendship without reciprocity. It's called stalking, right? <laughs> 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 you know, but it's, it's going to take um, on your part, like the giving, like I'm willing to be vulnerable with the right people, of course. Right. And virtuous people. And then on their part too, there has to be this receptivity like, oh yeah, I do want to hear you with all of the complexity that's you and you're striving for virtue, but also the things that will probably be aggravating for me or the things that might be a little bit different than me, you know, like Mm -hmm. people are the whole package and it's, it could, I think it'd be difficult on both ends to like, one's got to give and the other one's got to receive. Yeah. Um, Going back to kind of like what we kind of mentioned are like these friendships of convenience and, and things like that. 
some i just wanted to like bring this up at some point like some of the loneliest times in my life has been whenever i'm in whenever i'm suffering that's mm-hmm. been one of even whenever i had friends that's been some of like the most loneliest times i've experienced because i think that's especially where those friendships of convenience really shine like you really see like where who are my friends who are like my real friends you know because um especially for for me like in my first semester of college um you know i i had a i got appendicitis a couple of weeks into school and it kind of there's a lot of complications afterwards and so that left me in a place where like i wanted friends like job right who job um in the beginning of hold on wait a minute <laughs> no 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 I wanted friends like Job who before they before they went off in the in the beginning I'll help chapters, you out, Trey, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> and Yeah, not Joe, but Job, the biblical character. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you think I said Joe? Just for the just for the listeners, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm I wanted friend- Job. Yes, Job. Um mm-hmm. I wanted friends like Job who just came and sat with him for, I think it was three or seven days. I'm not sure, but who just came and sat with him in his suffering day and night, you know, whether it's people to just come and be with you. And I think, you know, at that point, but before like just stopping at that point and not looking at the rest of the story, those are friends who, who weren't getting anything out of it, who weren't necessarily, um, you know, they're, a lot of horrible things that happened to Job and they're just coming and being with him. And I think that's like a, a hallmark of where these true friendships come is especially whenever you're suffering, whenever you're going through these intense droughts of being in the desert and in pain and suffering with a cross, like to have those friends who come and just sit with you. That's supposed to be a, a mark of Christian community, right? Rejoice mm-hmm. with those who rejoice, suffer those who suffer. Mm-hmm. To Dr. Minard's point, though, Job's friends end up not being the best of friends. They end up saying, Trey, it's your fault that you're suffering right now. Yeah, come <laughs> on, Trey. There must have been something you did. You must have eaten some food or not exercised. Yeah, but in the beginning they were right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You probably ate too much bologna. Where were they? (laughs) Wait, but in the beginning they Uh, were though, right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, They they did. They they start off sitting with him, and then they they were just thinking. Then they start unleashing. Yeah, yeah. Cut it out, then. Cut it out. (laughs) (laughs) Hey Trey, did you know that the Bible starts with a baseball game? (laughs) <laughs> let it out at least look at this <laughs> yeah it starts with a big inning <laughs> look at it wait big inning, inning. wait for big it inning. wait for it <laughs> wait he's still beginning yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man great <laughs> well i did just want to add one more note from kind of reflecting on all of this together but 
Trey and Catherine, I really, I commend you on all the Friday get-togethers and everything that you have <laughs> Elise is no, feeling don't. guilty. We, I, no, 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 no. We don't I deserve I the boot and balls. I didn't know about this, but <laughs> um, really, I, I do because it sounds like you've been really intentional. And I think intentionality is something that you really need mm-hmm. in building community. And um, I just want to shout out to someone who's not here, but who has been on podcasts before, but Ansley, who is someone in our community. Um, she's someone who's really intentional. And in our friendship, I think probably in y'all's as well for Catherine, I think she's mm-hmm. a very intentional person. And she's also a scheduled person, yeah. as we know. <laughs> and I'm I'm not. I'm just not. I don't, I don't live that life. I try and I try <laughs> and I try, but I can't get no schedule. Um, but the thing is, is when I she schedules something with me and I see that she's so intentional. It makes me want to fulfill our friendship more, like fulfill that. Okay. Meet up with her. And it, it knows it. I see that she appreciates me. She appreciates me as a person. And also she says flat out because I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a busy person. And I think you guys know, like I have a very busy schedule and I just kind of shut down when I get busy, which is not a good part of, my, um, I'm not virtuous in that way, but she's a very busy person, but she schedules her life out and, you know, and she'll say, I'm very busy, but I can give this hour, you know, I'm very busy, but, uh, do you want to meet up for coffee or have a friend catch up in three weeks? And I'm, for me, I'm like, I don't know, but if I put it on the calendar, (laughs) I appreciate it so much when we get there. And I think that's something that's been really beautiful to see. And that's kind of kept our friendship really strong. Yes. Ansley is an old soul. <laughs> yeah. So she, and, and it's, yeah, I mean, millennials and Gen Z are notorious, even though on the tail end of Gen X, I do this sometimes too, but notorious for having a fear of commitment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. talk about a friendship killer, right? Like yeah. somebody asks you to go do something in a week and you're sort of like, eh, I'm not going to respond yet just in case. Right. Know? Or like, yeah. maybe I'll let you know. Right. Yeah. I'll let yeah. you know. And then they tell you the day before, Hey, I can't make it. And it's just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a real kind of utility in it. It's like, Oh, well, I'm going to maximize whatever I can get for myself. You know? And if you happen mm-hmm. to fit into that, I'll see you Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> Hey, so real quick, just to finish things up, uh, what would you all say in this time of the coronavirus? What's what's a good, uh, what's something that our community should be doing that would help loneliness? Mm-hmm. Any ideas just to throw out there? I think if you are living with your family, which I, I mean, I happen to be, right? Um, I think if you're living with your family, really taking advantage of the time that you do have with your family. Right. Um, and just communing with that first, right. That, that first community that you ever have, right. Your, your family. Um, I think taking advantage of that. Cause I know even though I live with my, I like, I live with my parents, all that kind of stuff. Um, because I go to school all day and, you know, I'm out doing, you know, big girl 
things, right? You know, I find that I never really see them, but now that I'm kind of like quarantined, you know, I, um, I get more of an opportunity to do that. And so I think if you have the opportunity, if you're living with your family or even just like living with the roommates that you have, right. Really pouring into that community, maybe, um, and taking advantage of that, like that little, you know, but in-person communication that you have. Yeah. Awesome. I would say, um, something that actually a good thing that is coming out of this break for me as a, being a student, um, is really trying to take advantage of the time I have to rest, but resting for the sake of, you know, recovering, participating in the little recreation I can, I, I can, whether it's playing board games or with, uh, with some people or, or with my family, things like that. But really, really taking this time to dive into prayer, to not be so, this is something I have to keep myself from too because i'm i always want to ke- keep up with the updates i always want to kind of keep reading and stuff but it's like whenever you think about it what if you're taking like an hour or a couple hours just put your phone away and just exist if you think about it there's little to nothing that could come in on the news within an hour or two that would cause you to pack up your bags and move or cause you to respond just you in your room in your house you know, there's little to nothing that would cause that. Yeah, I recommend just stalking your local supermarket and looking for paper <laughs> products that come back on the shelves, especially, you know, all the sanitizing things, mm. mm-hmm. panic Al- buying. <laughs> Elise will meet you at in front of the vending machine in front of Safeway. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Actually, I should go to Fran U and get all of the things out of it. That's a that's good advice. That, I mean, that's my advice. Um, Yikes. <laughs> but um, for real, Trey, you said it nicely. Catherine also, solid advice. But I would, yeah, I would spend this time, I think we said earlier, especially with clinical rotation, you get busy. And I couldn't have imagined that God would just kind of pluck me out of my busyness because I was talking with a friend via text yesterday and I'm always trying to just catch up. She said it really nicely. Like I was like, that's so true. I'm just always trying to like, Oh, I'm just going to catch up and like, I'm going to do my homework and my schoolwork and then I'm going to catch up on life and then I'm going to get some rest. and I'm going to catch up. But now we're kind of presented in this new situation where that we have some time and we can kind of rest a little more and a lot of my time can be transportation and kind of running back and forth across town. And so we do, we're presented with some more time. So just some things that I'm going to try to do would be to make a schedule for myself, because I think you can kind of lose time if you are just kind of floating and then you don't realize I was on my phone for 45 minutes. Um, Then I'm going to try to walk my dog because I don't want to be inside all the time. Um, get some fresh air. And then also, like Trey said, pray. And I think I've shared this with Dr. Miner. I'm going to try to read a little more because it's nice to read books when you have the time. Um, (laughs) And in school, it's always like on the list, but it never actually makes it to read those books that you really want to read. And you just kind of talk about it. Slash, I have a book out for him I've rented and he's going to 
really be harsh about that if I don't get it back to him soon. That's true. <laughs> um, but lastly, I think, as we've talked about in this podcast episode, um, I think when if you do struggle in this time, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, Zoom. Zoom your friends. Get a big group. We talked about in theology. We're going to have Zoom lunches. We might just have other random Zoom theology Zoom birthday meetings, parties, maybe. Yes. I don't know. Exactly. Um, birthday parties. But still, I mean, it. there is something about being in community, worshiping in liturgy and communally. Um, so if you are lonely, cry out to Jesus. And also at the end of the night, if you ha- like go to bed lonely and pray, just cry yeah. out to Jesus in those moments instead of, I think, grabbing for Netflix or whatever the temptation yeah. is. Yeah, my whole thing in thinking about this is that we just kind of frame it correctly. And a lot of the way we approach pandemics and something like that is they can be really divisive, right? They can further exacerbate an already divided community that basically only relates on the basis of production and consumption. And so I think framing, thinking about what's actually happening here and isolating ourselves for the benefit of others is actually a really beneficial thing. And I hope it could go forward. We were talking at the beginning, I was wondering, look at this, like, look at all these people doing stuff for the weakest members of our community. Like, what would that look like if we totally revised and reshaped our lives and we just live like this all the time? It'd be unreal. I mean, that's, but that's the way community is supposed to work. You're always worried about the person on your team who's not doing well. And that kind of slips our consciousness most of the time but right now it's been brought to the forefront i just hope we don't lose it but i also hope we don't let i hope so we have to frame it correctly as ours acts of love and solidarity by isolating ourselves but i hope we don't think that isolating ourselves is the total exhaustion of love and solidarity (laughs) you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like you could get stuck there too and refuse to reach out to your elderly neighbor, you know, who might be alone and scared to go to the grocery store or someone at your parish or something like that. So it's like, no, I'm going to do my part. I'm just going to sit in my house. And that's certainly something, right? If you're doing it for the right reason out of love, but I, we can't let, it's a time of fear also. And anytime there's an excessive amount of fear, I'm always scared it'll squash love Mm. because Mm. that's what fear does. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great article in our Sunday Visitor by Lenny De Lorenzo in which he was encouraging parishes to lay people to sort of take up the charge of calling parishioners, um, especially the elderly, especially the vulnerable, even people who haven't been in a while, just to touch base and say, Hey, how are you doing through all of this? And what do you need? And to sort of, uh, pool the resources of the parishioners to try and reach out to those people. I thought it was really beautiful. So um, I sent that to Father Andrew, and I think we're going to try to take a swing at it at Christ the King. But I think that's something that, you know, I hope uh, spreads throughout the country because I think there's a lot of good work and that our parishes can do. And this it's true. This is a time that could be highly formative for us if we if it's used rightly and framed rightly is we're not well accustomed to thinking about the common good and about the least. And this is a chance, I guess, to you know, have our vision corrected, so to speak. Mm-hmm. 
on that note, uh, let's end this thing. Please, 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 if you will, uh, subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes because that definitely helps get the podcast out there. You can catch us at dunspod.com. We're on Twitter at dunspod. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, you can email us at dunspod at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And we will see you next time. Peace. Yeah, Go get the earwax mics. <laughs> <laughs> They're so bad. <laughs> yep, those. Oh. Yeah, give it, give it a try, Elise. Give it a try. If you have a pencil with you, you can just she can't scoop it right out. Now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you know that earwax can like? This is kind of gross, but it's fine. Earwax can like fall out in chunks out of your ear, and I didn't realize that. It didn't happen to me, but I was just like, oh, that's gross. Please don't talk about earwax at a time like this. <laughs> if this doesn't help. But it's like balled up and you just fall out. It's if weird. If this doesn't help, absolutely not doing this. <laughs> <laughs>